Good evening and welcome to the Lockdown Winnipeg Jets podcast, part of the Lockdown Podcast Network, your team every day. I'm your host, Harrison Lee, an avid Winnipeg Jets fan and an online blogger. You can follow me on Twitter at HLivingLoco and follow the podcast Twitter at LO underscore Winnipeg Jets. As always, be sure to follow and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform of choice, including Apple, Spotify, Google, and the Megaphone app. Subscribing is free and keeps you up to date on the latest and greatest in Winnipeg Jets news and analysis. There was no particular hockey news today other than the fact that I think uh, a day or two ago another Colorado player was apparently diagnosed with COVID-19, but um, other than that the league has been pretty quiet. I think that there are some signings that have been going on. A couple of guys are, are moving to their teams now from college. I believe the one of the first big names is going to be Trevor Zegras heading to Anaheim. It also appears Dylan Sandberg's mighty Minnesota squad is also getting dismantled. So, you know, Sandberg's time might be coming if he wants to sign with the Jets, which is great news for us because we basically have, you know, half of an AHL defense at this point. Maybe ECHL to be generous. Getting some actual NHL talent or, or guys who could probably be NHL talent would be certainly a, a welcome change of pace. We've already gotten DeMello, and we could definitely use somebody like Sandberg. I hope he wants to commit pretty soon and sign for us. With the generic Jets and NHL news out of the way, I thought I'd talk about a couple of different things tonight. I thought I'd talk about the greatest season in contemporary Jets history, what I want to see the Jets do for next season, and some unrelated stuff about how to get started in FIFA Ultimate Team, because everybody seems to be jumping on this game, and it's a bit of a mess right now, but hey, there's always some starting places for everyone to get uh, at least their feet wet. So, the 2017-2018 season, I think most people would agree, aside from Winnipeg relocating from Atlanta, I think um, 17 and 18 is probably the season that will always stand out in our minds as really exemplifying what we felt the Jets could become. Winnipeg did a lot of things that I'd always dreamed of them accomplishing, and I think the first thing was playing exciting, frenetic, action-packed, and also dominant offensive hockey. This is a kind of style of play that the Jets really haven't done for many years, in part because I think that their approach is often too conservative. Winnipeg is kind of a traditionally, I guess, defensively-minded team, but I think defensively-minded doesn't actually mean that they're good at defense. It just means that that's how they approach things like counters, absorbing pressure, managing defensive zone coverages, all that stuff. They tend to be very conservative and shell up. In 2017-2018, that was the first season where it felt like the Jets started to cut loose a little bit more. And this is kind of funny because, in some ways, I feel like that team was geared just to uh, to really control play. But, you know, it, it takes a lot for Maurice to, to be comfortable for him to let the four lines all roll. More often than not, Paul doesn't seem to trust all of his guys to maintain, I guess, a free-flowing, fast attack fast transition kind of game. He usually likes something that's a bit slower, a bit more methodical, and he always appreciates what he feels is strong defensive discipline and and responsibility. That team, though, had almost everything you could ask for. It had one of the best power plays the league has ever seen. It had exciting, fast, dominant 5v5 hockey where the Jets could basically attack in multiple waves, hit you with their top six, then a really good scoring third line, and then a shutdown fourth line. No matter which arrangement of the, the top six and the bottom six you, you dealt with, it was almost assured that the Jets were going to pressure you the entire time in your offensive zone. And that's kind of something that I think that Winnipeg hasn't really had in a long time, is that sort of dominant forechecking pressure with a ton of good passing, great vision, great setup, and, and really strong perimeter play that generates low low slot, high danger chances. 
you know, when the Jets cycled the puck back then, it was something that actually caused threat for other teams. Nowadays, they are a little bit more modest in the sense that I think Winnipeg just sort of cycles the puck a lot, but doesn't actually create much in the way of offensive opportunities off of that cycle. And it's a bit unfortunate because I think that they certainly have the scoring talent to be dangerous. It's just they haven't really been able to generate much offense on a consistent basis, especially at even strength. That team a couple of years ago, though, had that in everything you could possibly ask for, and it also had a very functional NHL defense, and I think a lot of that came down to having Bufflin and Enstrom still in tow. People didn't really understand just how important Toby Enstrom was until he was gone, and even then I'm I'm not sure that everyone really appreciates the kind of defensive and intelligent presence that he really provided that back end. Enstrom was, for us, one of the smartest D we've ever had. I think in a lot of ways... Vili Heinola is like the natural hybrid of his style, with something a bit more offensively minded from maybe Enstrom's earlier career. Before he moved to Sweden, though, Enstrom was basically a shutdown guy who surely, you know, wasn't wasn't the physically strongest player on the roster, and his size occasionally did get the better of him, especially in, in wall battles and stuff, but what he did instead to compensate for his size was always maintain a good spatial awareness, cut passing and shooting lanes off early, and make sure that he had his stick in position to to make interceptions and all sorts of other stuff. He was somebody who could see plays developing ahead before they were really in sequence by about two to three seconds, and so he'd position himself ahead of time to be prepared for whenever the play came in. And, you know, no matter who he was facing, even if it was a speedy forward, Enstrom was always very good at getting himself in the right spot to uh, either force at least some kind of a pass-off, maybe a a low-danger shot, or just to seal off that area in general and keep the forward from making a play. Enstrom, unfortunately, you know, went out on not great terms with the Jets, and it's always a shame because I feel like he's the exact kind of guy the Jets needed this season. But, you know, whether or not he'd actually be productive anymore, kind of hard to say. That said, I think he would have made a a difference like Bufflin would have. Bufflin, obviously, a much bigger difference, I would say. But not having Enstrom has certainly hurt the Jets over the past couple of seasons, and I feel like, you know... Winnipeg is going to need to find a replacement for him sooner rather than later. I think they have that replacement, although he comes with additional interest. It's just that I think that, you know, especially for the third pairing, if Winnipeg can lock down Kulikov for a couple seasons at a reasonable price, like, you know, one and a half to two million dollars, I would be very down for that. I think Kulikov, in some ways, is like a more physical Enstrom. Obviously, he doesn't really possess anywhere near that that level of hockey IQ and defensive play. And not because Kulikov isn't a smart guy or anything. I just think that Enstrom was at a a league above most because of his physical abilities. He had to compensate for his knees not being great. And Kulikov mostly has to deal with his back more than anything. I think Enstrom just had to, you know, adapt his game and style a lot faster and a lot more intensively just because he was not as mobile as he used to be. Even though 17-18 did end in on bittersweet note, I feel like that was the most successful team that we've ever seen. And, you know, with a few tweaks and stuff, I feel like the Jets could actually get back to that point. I don't know if it's going to happen in the next couple of seasons, but we've already seen the Jets at their best, and it's not like it's impossible to reach those heights again. They just need to be smart, make the right decisions, make some adjustments on the coaching end of things, and kind of go from there. So, next season, how do the Jets recover their 2017-2018 form? To be honest, they don't. Not next season, at least. If, If they do, I think I would be more shocked than anything and I think most people would also be rather surprised because the Jets are missing quite a few pieces of that 2017-2018 magic mix. 
We'll start with the basics, though, and I think having a, a functional NHL defense is obviously of, of pressing concern. I don't exactly know how the Jets are going to rebuild that blue line, but they will have a couple of prospects to give a shot to, and I think the, uh, the upcoming training camps and stuff are going to be very important. I say all this, but honestly, no one really knows what next year's schedule is even going to look like because we haven't even finished this year's schedule, and they haven't decided what they're going to do about the rest of the season. All of these training camps and things at this point are kind of up in the air, and, you know, I think most people are going to take care of the paperwork first while they still can, but beyond that, everything is kind of a mystery, and there have been no real hard decisions made. So let's just kind of assume that next season does happen at some point. I don't know if it's going to be on the same normal time frame. My guess is probably not. Maybe they abbreviate next season. But, you know, either way, the Jets kind of have to find some defenders. And I feel like Dylan DeMello's extension is going to be the first key cog. I would like to bring back DeMello on a three to four year deal for around two and a half to three million. I think that that's great value for what he does. And I feel like he's exactly the kind of player that the Jets need, especially on a value deal. Until such time as the Jets start finding higher end defensemen, I feel like he and Morrissey are going to have to anchor that top pairing for as long as possible. It's obvious that Winnipeg right now is a little bit thin on high-end NHL defensive talent. They do have some guys that might fill in that gap, but not exactly on the right side. I think it's pretty clear that Vili Heinola will probably be the, the second-pairing left defenseman, barring some kind of a surprise. I think Heinola has more than proven that he's probably ready to, uh, to, to really take over that role and at least help Morrissey out a little bit. In fact, Heinola might actually get first pairing time. They might have to split the, the top two pairings a little bit just because I think Morrissey was a bit overwhelmed, and it kind of seemed like Maurice was cognizant of that because he said, you know, at one point, Morrissey had his best game of the season, and that was like one of the only games where Morrissey was genuine, genuinely very good. Despite this, though, I mean, he continued to get tons of ice time and deployment, so maybe Maurice didn't actually care that much. I don't know. He might have also felt like that was his best option. It's the kind of same thing that he said about Kyle Connor on the PK, which is if he thinks that you're the best fit for that role, you're going to get that ice time. So, you know, Heinola would be a, a big improvement. I think Sandberg coming in would probably help. I don't know if Sandberg's really ready for top four time. He might have to start on the third pairing or even eat some early moose time, a couple of moose games before he gets called up. Given the Jets' defense, I feel like he can actually just play right now, and he'd probably be like our fourth or fifth best defenseman off the bat, even before playing a single game, just because the Jets' D is pretty thin. I think that he can reasonably be expected to be like a second-pairing quality D, although he was really pushing and driving play on the back end for Minnesota, so there might be something a little more interesting in his game. I know that when he was drafted, the Jets were very high on him, because he had a very unique physical tool set, and he had displayed some of those skills at like the, the high school level. I'd say his offensive push this season, though, was very impressive, and I'd be curious to know what exactly he does going forward. I don't know how much of his game is going to translate at the NHL level, but if he becomes, like, say, a number 3D for the Jets, or at the very best, like a number 2, I think that that would be phenomenal value for what he is. Sandberg is obviously somebody who, for the Jets, is probably going to be a critical piece to sign this offseason. They really need defensive help, and he's one of the most immediate solutions available, and he'll be obviously a free agent if he doesn't sign, so yeah, kind of imperative that the Jets bring him in the fold. I'd also look at giving Jonathan Kovacevic and maybe even Declan Chisholm some ice time. I think Chisholm's a bit way, you know, a bit of a ways off. Uh, Declan probably needs at least some moose time before he could even get a call-up considered. But Kovacevic seems like he's probably more in shape to play. I think Kovacevic is, you know, a modest 
third pairing guy, somebody with, you know, not a whole lot of upside, but he does have some physical traits and things which make him a very interesting, at least third pairing D prospect with a booming shot. You know, a couple of guys like that usually take over that number six spot and, and have some offensive success. Usually you find those dudes are like bench rock types. I think of him as probably a number five D at the tops, which is fine. I think that that's the kind of thing that the Jets need because right now they're relying on players like Lucas Abisa instead. But, you know, if you have to choose between him and, say, Leon Gavanki, I kind of get the sense that Gavanki has a much higher upside. I think that Gavanki legitimately has certain transition skill sets and a developing and burgeoning offensive instinct that's going to make him a very unique, very special D for the Jets. Gavanki is also probably not exactly a top pairing prospect, but he certainly has top four potential, and I think that that's something that's important for the Jets because, again, they're a bit short on these roles. They have players who can play in the top four, but perhaps aren't suited to the currently elevated ice times that they're actually getting on the ice. Pionk, with a bit of a cut down on his minutes, would probably be something of a, a boon. I think that Pionk has done about as well as you can expect, but certainly he does need help, and it's obvious that his defensive game still has issues. He's, in a lot of ways, still very raw in his own end, and sometimes he just doesn't seem to recognize the threat when it's coming at him or near him, and that's something that he needs a, a capable partner to handle. You roll Heinola Pinonk, and I think that that's going to be a very good pairing going forward. So let's just assume that the Jets' D is probably the main focus, I think, for Winnipeg. They do also have to figure out a, a second-line center option, but I, I don't know how you even th go about thinking about that because... The Jets just don't really have any options other than waiting for Brian Little and hoping someone like David Gustafson or Andrew Kopp steps up. I think we all know that Jack Rosovic is probably not a second-line center, so your options for that role are going to be very thin. I, I don't want to bring Cody Eakin back because I think that Eakin is mostly like a fourth-liner, and the Jets have plenty of guys like that. I would be interested to know if Janssen Harkins has ever played center. I don't want to force him into that role, but it might be an interesting look to give. Native position conversions are obviously very difficult, but I, for some reason I felt like Harkins might have actually played center when he was with Red Deer. I don't think he did it with throwing the moose all that much, though, so I don't want to have him change positions if he's not really comfortable and, and capable of doing it. Finding a second-line center in the D will probably be Winnipeg's highest priorities. I don't know that they're really going to have time for anything else. I think that those are the two biggest needs, and they probably know it at this point because... I think the, the glaring weaknesses on the roster at this point are very, very obvious to anyone who has even looked at the roster just for like half a second. While the Jets roster may not be in the best of shape, what is in the best of shape are the wonderful opportunities you'll have as an advertising partner with the Locked On Podcast Network. If you've been a listener of this podcast for a while, you've probably heard about all of the great advertisers currently working with Locked On to reach sports fans around the world. What you may not know, though, is that Locked On Winnipeg Jets is a great way for your local business to reach passionate Jets fans just like you. Unlike any other podcast, Locked On gives your local company the unique ability to reach Jets fans on a routine basis. Our listeners are special. They're Locked On listeners, and they're hardcore fans. If your company wants to connect with Jets fans who are predominantly male, well-educated, and with disposable income, then feel free to drop us a line at Locked On. Local fans love supporting local businesses, and we love supporting you. Text the word advertising to 33777 or visit LockedOnPodcasts.com slash advertising and drop us a line. Our team will work with you step-by-step step to achieve the greatest level of locked-on advertising success. Once again, be sure to text the word advertising to 33777 or visit lockedonpodcasts.com slash advertising. We look forward to hearing from you soon. Right now, most folks are self-quarantining in their own homes and remaining away from others during the weekends, which means that folks are going to get a little bit stir-crazy. 
and a lot of folks have started turning to FIFA 20 as a means of release and something to occupy the time. That also means that a lot of FIFA players are also returning to uh, the Ultimate Team Mode, which is very similar to what you see in NHL 20's Ultimate Team Mode. By opening packs of cards and completing objectives, you too can actually improve over time your quality of team and the players on your roster. Now, getting started in FIFA 20's Ultimate Team is actually pretty hard, especially right now because at this point we're pretty late in the game, but that doesn't mean that you're out of luck. Here's a handy guide to getting started. The first thing that you want to do is when you're poor on coins, you kind of have to do a couple of roundabout tricks to get more packs and stuff very quickly. My first recommendation is to grind out some very easy squad battles, and these can be done very quickly, and uh, if you know what you're doing and, and how to do it, you can earn some quick coins and also get some objectives completed on the season objectives, which unlock rewards as you gain experience. These coins can help you buy your first gold base meta team, and the meta teams are essentially teams that fit the style of gameplay that FIFA 20 currently offers. And right now FIFA 20 favors teams with high agility, which basically affects how fast you can turn, high balance, which means how often you're able to maintain control and maintain your balance while being under pressure, composure, which determines how likely you are to finish on your shooting chances, and pace, which is more or less what it sounds like speed. So you want a couple of things out of that, but I, for one, am somebody who tends to play with a lot of strength and aggression as well. I like big, physical, strong players who can, you know, maintain possession of the ball and advance the ball forward while being harassed and harried by defenders. If you want a nice balance of the two, I'd start with Premier League teams, and you can build a pretty decent one very cheaply. I'd start with uh, getting Kepa in net because Kepa always seems to be pretty good. He's from Chelsea and he won't be that expensive. For your defense, you might have to do a little bit of jury rigging. I'd start with a four-man backfield with uh, Kieran Tierney at left back. I would have Joe Gomez and Nathan Ake as your two center backs. And your right back, a uh, Premier League right back, uh, Joao Cancelo I think is pretty decent. I don't love his card, but it's all right. It's also you know, a little more expensive than some of the other ones. It's going to be a few thousand coins. And right now he has a special card out, so it might actually be more than that. But he's somebody that you can work up to. For your two midfielders, I'd recommend going with Fabinho and Sissoko. These will be your two holding midfielders, and I would say that you want to start with a 4-2-3-1 because this offers the most support, and the 4-2-3-1 will allow you to have Sissoko and, uh, and Fabinho as your two CDMs, which should give you enough defensive stability without sacrificing a whole lot of pace. At Cam, you could do... Uh, it's kind of hard to say. There aren't that many great Premier League Cams, but you might try James Madison, one of his inform cards, because those are usually less expensive, or just regular James Madison. I think he'll be sufficient. At left mid, probably Bernard is decent. He has a special card, but obviously you won't be able to afford that immediately. Your right mid, you might go with like a cheap Willian or something. Again, none of these cards are particularly great, but they get you started off the bat. And that striker, Marcus Rashford's 83 card, is very decent. That team will get you a lot farther than some of the other ones, and it's still not ideal, but it does get you at least in the starting gate. From there, you can build hybrid teams that connect based on leagues that they're in or the nations that they're a part of. And that's part of the whole game plan of slowly improving your squad. I usually have like a hybrid team with a couple of icons, which are historical legend players that connect to anyone. I also feature Turkish League and Bundesliga teams in my squad. I always like the kind of weird hybrids because everyone has meta teams that are always the same players. You know, you probably know, of course, Neymar, Kylian Mbappe, Lionel Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo. All those kinds of players are, are high-end expensive, and everyone always uses them. 
after you've accrued coins and unlocked some cards and packs and stuff, go experiment and have a little bit of fun because there are a lot of neat cards out there that people don't use. Stuff like Max Cruza, uh, Marco Arnautovic from the CSL, lots of really interesting cards that people have overlooked and maybe you might actually like because they fit your particular playstyle. I would recommend maintaining a wide formation, but if you feel like you need to go narrow, you can certainly do that, and you can also adjust your tactics to have multiple formations within the game, and that way you can set up any kind of situation that you feel like, pending how your opponent is playing, or whether you're defending with a lead or not. Be sure to read up on some in-depth guides on how to change tactics and manage your roster, because those are always key moments, especially if you're just starting out. Thanks everyone for listening, I hope those tips gave you a little bit of a, a head start on getting your new FIFA Ultimate Team running. Thanks again so much for listening. Be sure to tune your set to the Locked On NHL National Show. Have a great night and see you tomorrow.